Welcome to the Film File. This is episode 97, and we're going to be talking about Highlander. <laughs> that will all make sense <laughs> once we do our little <laughs> intro thing, because there's something to talk about this week. Hello and welcome, I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. And you're probably thinking, what's with the obscure opener? Wasn't last <laughs> week's episode... 200 what's 40 on about well it's because i have the mind of a sieve <laughs> yeah so uh after we'd finished wrapping last week and we were discussing the next 10 episodes and like setting out the next 10 deep dives and we've got quite a good list ahead of us we're going back to old films as well as some modern classics we're jumping through the decades so uh i'm sure there's going to be something for everyone out there but i then sent over a list to lee of like okay this is what i've come up with up until episode 210 emails back great list how about all these? And puts a list of films. And there's some great ones in there that we're now tagging on for the next lots of episodes. But he also put in <laughs> a handful of films that yeah. I looked at and went, I'm, I'm sure we've done them. So uh, luckily, I now keep an archive. Um, I, I've got a nice little document with what we've done the deep dives on and what episodes. So whenever he replied to him, it was like, yeah, I've added them onto the list, except for the ones that we've already done, mate. And he was like, why? What have we done? I was like, well, MASH, Silent Running, Fight Club, <laughs> Escape from New York. And then he was like, oh, yeah, oh, oh, I'm getting forgetful. And then he emailed back saying, what about Logan's Run? Should we do that? I was like, yeah, that was episode 83, mate. <laughs> <laughs> We've done 200 episodes. I'm, I'm surprised I remember to um, to appear every week. I can't, I can't believe how many films we've actually covered. We've plowed through a lot, and there's been ones that, one or either me or you hadn't seen before we've done the deep dive yeah. there's ones that we've not seen for decades and so both of us had kind of maybe misremembered some elements but going back to rewatch them it was like eye-opening one of the things with the deep dives is that what the idea is is that we're talking about some older films that maybe people have overlooked and yeah. some of them are old ones that everyone should have seen but some of them are like oh that's a real like proper deep dive that's like something that is obscure and we hope that it gets you guys out there thinking I've not seen that. Shall I check it out? And I know that at least two of our regular listeners do do this. Um, and that's Lindsay and Owen, who, when I saw them in the cinema a couple of weeks ago, they said how like they've now got it into the habit that when we've deep, done a deep dive into something, they'll add it into the list of films that they've got to see and they'll sit and watch them together. So that's the idea, is that we're opening your eyes to films that maybe you've not seen for ages, not seen at all, or you've heard bad things of and never really felt the need to watch. And, you know, we even talk about films that we don't like. <laughs> Sucker punch. I'm looking right at you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we challenge each other as well. We do. Um, <laughs> Lee likes to challenge me quite frequently with films that <laughs> he loves. And uh, I, I don't want to upset him too much. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we'll throw out ones that the other one, the other one of us isn't particularly a fan of. But that gives us the opportunity to watch it to dig out what actually works and see what makes it work for other people. We did it last week with Madden Webb when I, we started review and I said, we could easily strip this down and rip it to shreds, but I want to try to look at some positives. And we started with the positives and there were some in that film. There's some yeah. positives in pretty much every film, except for Paul Blart Molecop. Needs to be said, <laughs> Paul Blart Molecop, there's nothing good in that film at all. This week's question of the week is all about positives. Uh, so we set our usual challenge over the socials and last week's question was, is there, and we're not just talking sort of B-movie, we're talking sort of 
the days of when there was uh, video shops on your corner of your street and you would go and they'd basically run out of all the sort of top tier movies and you were left with the Z grade movies, usually directed by uh, Albert Pion or Charles Band movie. But you know what? Just because there were Z grade movies doesn't mean that they're terrible. So that was our question. Which low-budget Z-list films that you actually are a big fan of? Andy, what do we know? We'll start over at Facebook this week. My mumsy Patricia Meakin responded, if Brigadoon comes under that category, then that's my choice. I've lost count of how many times I've watched it on my DVD. Love the fairy story, story theme. Brings me back to my childhood every time. I, I'm not sure that Brigadoon really comes under that the That was a big-budget film back in the day. Yeah. But um, we'll let you have it, Mumsy, because I know how much you love it. Lindsay Story, I mean, this is the one. This is the Z-list movie that everyone talks about. Plan 9 from Outer Space. If you're a film fan, yes. you have to watch this just to see how bad it is. I've watched loads of B-movies on a Saturday night when my parents went out with my brother. The likes of Shocker, Maniac Cop, Waxwork. Those are the things. Um, vaguely remember one, I think, called Fade to Black, about a guy who dresses as movie characters. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. I've not seen that one. Yeah, Lauren Hutton, I think. I'm adding that one to my list. Uh, but ultimate favourite, and I believe everyone should watch it at least once, maybe even a deep dive. And she mentioned this, and it brought back memories of when I was a kid, and it was this was rented out from the video shop for me. Saturday the 14th. <laughs> I don't remember that one, but <laughs> at least a million points for, for original marketing. It's brilliant. Picked that every time it was my turn to choose a film, and my brother wanted to kill me. Uh, Owen Cooper posted a gif of Napoleon Dynamite. And, uh, and then followed it with, as straight for DVD, I have to mention Trick or Treat, which is a staple to watch at Love Halloween. It. Love Trick or Treat. That's the deep dive we should do. Yes. Unless we've done it. We've not done Trick or Treat. We've not done Trick or Treat. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> I also have to mention Whatever Happened to Baby Jane for the low budget. Yes, yeah, a low budget movie, but it's a lot of class. I mean, great yeah. cast. Great films. Terrified me as a kid. One of those films that really haunted me. Oh, and then followed on with Dead Man's Shoes is also a brilliant low-budget film. Yeah, loved it. And to add to Paddy Considine's films, also love Submarine. So yeah. um, some great great picks in there. Uh, but definitely, Saturday the 14th, I'm going to see if I can track that, a copy of that down and rewatch it. I've not seen it since it was. Oh, a wee little snapper. Over on The Mastodon. Salty Red Popcorn said, I'm not sure if it completely counts. I don't know the budget, and there are certainly a few recognisable names in the cast. But the superb enemy territory is diehard in a rundown apart apartment block with an insurance salesman in place of an accomplished cop and a co-lead role for Ray Ghostbusters Parker Jr. I love it all and it's been top of my Blu-ray wish list for many years. And Aussie at Macedon World, I adore Technolust. It's one of the most bonkers movies I've ever watched and I enjoyed every minute of it. It features Tilda Swinton just before she hits it big playing four characters, three of whom are colour-coded computer programmes. The human character is named Rosetta Stone, and I've, I've never watched it, and now, no, just from that description alone, I need it in my life. <laughs> Over on Twitter, we said last week this was one of my favourite names that someone's given themselves on Twitter, Sis Astro Aqua Girl ACNH hash, uh, asterisk Star Wars. What was the initial rating for Buckaroo Banzai? Love that film. And I've oh, got a feeling you might yeah. agree with that one. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, made my you're straight into straight into Lee's heart with that one. Um, and if you want to know why, just check back through our old episodes. We covered it as a deep dive because, well, Lee wanted to get my opinion on it. Uh, Craig Wright, tech writer, 
A Room for Romeo Brass. Love it because it's funny and it reminds me so much of my childhood. But it also gets dark and is a good piece about growing up too fast and fragile childhood friendships. Plus, it's very quotable. Um, Never seen it. Never seen it. So maybe one to add to the deep dive. Yes, it's a a hard watch. It's a hard watch, but it's it's when Shane Meadows was uh, at his height, to be perfectly honest. I mean... 24-7 is still my favourite Shane Meadows film, followed by Dead Man's Shoes. And over uh, through Spotify, Mr. Greaves said coherence instantly brings to mind a fantastic high-concept movie that manages to pull off its bizarre cosmic premise using only a house and street. I also love the sweet half-musical Once. Oh, yeah. Kate Young said, for our family, it's Flint Street Nativity, which has the adult cast playing the part of primary school kids. It's hilarious, well worth a watch, and includes some great British comedy. I don't know that one either. There's quite a selection there that we we ourselves haven't seen. So, as as always, that's added more things onto my watch list that I need to track down. Because uh, every week when we do this, I end up with a whole load of films to play catch up with. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Keep those answers coming in. <laughs> I'm going to add into that Trancers. I don't know if you've great ever seen choice. Trancers. A, a Charles Band movie. It's sort of a, a cross between Blade Runner, Stroke, Night of the Living Dead, uh, and I absolutely adore it. Uh, from the Charles Band staple stars Tim Thomason, who leaves 2247 Angel City for 1985 Los Angeles, so it's a bit of Terminator as well, to stop a zombie mystic. Uh, had a Tim Thomason, who was a fantastic leading man, and, and Helen Hunt in her first screen role. And boy, is she magnetic and tell why Helen Hunt went on to do greater things. I just love it. It's one of those cheapo movies that, despite not having much of the way of budget, it had a ton of imagination. That was definitely a a VHS rental for myself. Yeah, back in the day. As we've said many times, I've got a fondness for low-budget schlock horrors. Yeah. You know, films like Larmageddon, Zombievers, Velocipasta, and last year, Slother House, all tick the box for me because there's cheesy fun to be had with low-budget horror, especially if it leans into the daft nature and makes the, makes the most fun of it. I mean, this goes back to as far as when I first rented out Bad Taste on VHS, very early uh, Ooh, Peter right. Jackson era. That's that's the perfect example for me of how the medium of like the low-budget schlock horrors is used by directors to gain a footing and to test things out, because look what Jackson moved on to. There's a sci-fi film from 1974, which was inspired by H.G. Wells' Empire of the Ants, and it's not Empire of the Ants with Joan Collins, which all, was also inspired by the story, but called Phase Four. I don't know if you've seen Oh, yeah, one. fantastic. Uh, uh, Saul Bass. Yes. Somebody Davenport in it. I can't remember his first name. Yeah, I love it. I've got a lot of time for it. I remember watching that when I was a kid, and it just captivated me. This whole aspect of, like, you know, a cosmic event causes ants to start to mutate and grow hyper-evolved, and they become the dominant species. But it's all focused within that science lab in the middle of the, like, desert. That's which right. Nigel Davenport. Due to budget restraints, they shot it in the UK, so it doesn't really look much like the Arizona desert, but they did a good enough job, and it was it kept it close, whereas Empire of the Ants film, not worth seeing. Same concept, same story, not worth seeing. Um, and also, action films. Let's let's not forget that El Mariachi was a micro-budget <laughs> Z-movie. Yes, it was paid for basically by... Uh, wasn't Robert Rodriguez doing medical testing to pay for it, if the legend is correct. Yeah, yes. He uh, he basically sold his soul to science <laughs> in order to raise the money to make it. And it's just a, it's just a masterwork 
of how to use a low budget effectively, which is something that Rodriguez then continued in that vein, keeping his budgets low up until recent decades when I think he's lent too much into the CGI technology. I was going to throw in John Carpenter's Dark Star, which started out as a student project yes. and they managed to get a bit of money. Fantastic special effects for a movie, which is so cheap. When we talk about using creativity, the fact that they got a huge beach ball, put feet on it, and made it the alien, which then inspired Dan O'Bannon, who's the scriptwriter and one of the stars of Dark Star, as well as doing the special effects to write Alien. Uh, the last one that I want to throw in is get, going back to the comedy horrors. And from 2011, there's a low budget. It's almost like the League of Gentlemen with gross out horror uh, called Inbred uh, nope, that came from that Alex Chandon. This one got on my radar because it was it was one of them that was like, well, this looks like it could be just garbage nonsense. And I sat and watched it and I was laughing as well as hiding my eyes from some of the more over the top, gro like gross out moments. And then afterwards, I found out that my brother-in-law is actually one of the cast in it. Oh, which, really? uh, <laughs> that was a complete surprise to me. Um, it's one which a good, good friend of the show, uh, Tony Earnshaw, he was one of the only press critics who championed this movie on release. Everyone laid into it and said it was garbage. But Tony was just like, no, this is right up my alley. And Tony knows his horror. Anyone who, yes. who's ever read any of his, his interviews that he's done or his journals or even his short stories knows that this guy knows horror. So... I'm on the same side as Tony with this one. Inbred is a great low-budget British horror choice. Well worth checking out. We should get Tony on to do a, a deep dive of Danger Diabolique, which I believe Tony shares yes. the love for. So thank yeah. you for that. Uh, always a pleasure to read out your responses. What have we got for you this week as our question of the week? So this week's question, and it's keeping in with our deep dive, which is going to be the jerk, Steve Martin. Uh, and Andy and I were talking about what a great film it is and, and how it started Martin's career. And then we are also looking forward to Spaceman, which is starring Adam Sandler in a straight role. And it got us thinking, uh, comedic actors who have delivered really good straight roles. So taken out of their usual safe space of being funny people, but do something that's really, really different. Mad Dog and Glory. With Bill Murray as a uh, as a psycho gangster, that kind of thing. Adam Sandler, if you want to go there, let us know in this week's question of the week. And to do that, all you have to do is reach us at head over to the usual socials: Facebook, Mastodon, Twitter, and Blue Sky. The question will get posted on there. Reply to there. You can answer it directly through Spotify. If you're listening on Spotify, it'll be just in the show notes beneath. Or you can email us directly, podcast at filmfile.uk. So let us know your answers. Uh, add more films onto my list to watch. That takes us nicely into what's happening in this week's show. So a deep dive. Yes, we're going to be looking at the first major starring role for Steve Martin in Carl Reiner's The Jerk. Andy has reviews of... Re released at cinemas this week, Wicked Little Letters. Oscar-nominated documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol. And also landed on Paramount Plus this week, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, which was William Friedkin's final film. We've got the news, we've got the box office, we've got one heck of a show. So let's kick off with the box office. What I do know is that Madam Webb has slipped into fourth place after just a week. 
uh, following a disastrous drop of 64% in its second weekend. What does that leave at the top of the box office charts? So in the US, Bob Marley, One Love takes the top spot. 13.5 million added to his total. Demon Slayer to the Hashira training opens up in second place with 11.6 million. Ordinary Angels in third place with 6.5 million. Madam Web slips to fourth place, taking only 6 million this weekend. And Migration in fifth place with 3 million. Here in the UK, it's Bob Marley again at number one, taking 2.4 million to add on to its total. Wicked Little Letters opens in second place with 1.5 million. Migration holds third place, 1.5 million. Demon Slayer to the Hashira Training in fourth place with 641,000. And Madam Web drops down to fifth place, 601,000. It's pretty much ending its run within the next week or so. So Madam Web, basically, it wasn't even a one-week wonder because, like we said last week, it, it opened in second place in the US, but it wasn't a good second place. It was 15.3 million. It's nothing to be proud of. And it's basically meant that Sony are rethinking their strategy going ahead with regards to the Spider-Verse kind of films. But they're not the only ones who are rethinking their strategy. Because Marvel itself, the proper MCU, have had to do some, what they're considering as retooling. Okay. A new feature piece at THR has gone into details about this creative retooling on various projects from Marvel Studios following the past couple of years of not all failures, but no. some underwhelming disappointments. Because you think about it, and we've said Shang-Chi did very well at the box office, as did, of course, Spider-Man No Way Home as did Guardians of the Galaxy. So it's not been a complete write-off. She-Hulk was kind of mixed, which we both enjoyed. Secret Invasion got quite the drubbing. I, I kind of liked it. I, I thought they took something in a different direction. I know I'm alone on that one. But it's not been that dreadful. It's only really been Quantumania, and Marvel's was had a very disappointing box office run. So it's not been all that doom and gloom. It's just that they had such a run for what nearly 19, 20 movies, which did exceptionally well. There's a lot of anticipation that Deadpool and Wolverine will do good box office and the general buzz with, you know, 365 million people watching the trailer over the first day is pretty strong. And the X-Men 97 cartoon should hopefully bring people back to the streaming services. But some things that have come from the article... The planned reshoots for Agatha Darkhold Diaries, which is, a, which is a show that has undergone about 15 name changes, <laughs> reportedly only had one day of reshoots rather than the typical five days of reshoots normally scheduled on standard MCU works. So that bodes well for where they think that's going to sit. Yeah. Eric Pearson, who was behind Thor Ragnarok and Black Widow, has been quietly polishing the script for the new Fantastic Four movie, which aims to shoot sometime over this summer. And the Bear showrunner, Joanna Carlo, is also working on the script for Thunderbolts, which is due to start shooting next month in Atlanta. Those are some good hefty names on those. Yes. It looks like they're stacking up to try to get the quality back in. I mean, they need to make sure that they've got enough time to film because the biggest problems that the MCU films have had over the past few years is the effects work has been rushed. And I still think that they're running that risk. Seems though they've announced that Thunderbolts, it's not even started shooting yet, but it's due out early next year. And Fantastic Four, which is going to start shooting pretty soon, is due out at the middle of next year. I think that's a tight turnaround for effects-heavy films. Well, just to jump in on that one, Andy, Fantastic Four star Ebon moss Bacharach, who's been cast as Ben Grimm, The Thing, uh, was actually cast last summer and has already been doing test work 
on what they're going to do with the thing, whether it's going to be a, a practical suit, a CG, or a combination of both. So it seems Marvel have known who the cast have been for some time before releasing it uh, to us, the uh, audience. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they've done a lot of the previs effects work already by the sounds of things. They're not just not just cast last week and then about to jump in. Fingers crossed they don't mess up. Uh, one thing that we do know is that all reference to Kang in future projects looks like it's getting scrubbed. Uh, Avengers Kang Dynasty has now been ditched as a title. We don't know if the Kang the Conqueror character will be mineralized, removed entirely, or will be recast. Nothing at this point in time, but we do know that it looks like they're wanting to take attention away from that character. Come on, they're going to be bringing Doom in in Fantastic Four. That's where they're going to go, aren't they? We also know that uh, Mark Ruffalo, when he's been speaking with GQ this week, said that he can kind of understand the fan exhaustion with Marvel pumping out too much output. In his words, I think the expansion into streaming was really exciting. But the thing about Marvel movies is you had to wait three years and that created a mystique. These corrections could be really positive things. Will it be what I, what it was? I don't know. But this slowing down that they're doing on the projects, this less is more aspect that Bob Iger's been talking about, hopefully we're going to see the benefits of in the coming years. Um, just sticking with Marvel, uh, one of the rumours going around is you know that we are getting a Marvel Zombies uh, show for Disney+. And apparently it will feature Blade, with the rumour being that... Maya Shara Ali will be voicing Blade. Then we talked about Blade last week. It's still taken as a pinch of salt at this time, but it seems very probable. In addition, the Blade character might also be getting tied into the Midnight Suns property for a potential outing. Uh, Midnight Suns is a team of supernatural superheroes, including Blade, Morbius, and at least two versions of Ghost Rider. And all the characters that have been involved in it in the comics, Moon Knight, Doctor Strange, Man-Thing, Wolverine, Iron Fist. Well, it's been reported last weekend that a version of Midnight Suns is in the works for Marvel Studios with Michael Giacchino, the composer-turned-filmmaker who gave us Werewolf by Night last year, attached to create and direct it. Well, talking of Avengers 5, which is no longer uh, the Kang movie, it was to be directed by Shang-Chi director Destin Daniel Cretton, who is now going to helm Lionsgate live-action Naruto movie. And it's one of those things I know very little about because I'm not much interested in anime. I couldn't tell you a thing about Naruto movie, but this seems to be the fad at the moment of adapting animes over to live-action. You know, we had the yeah. success of One Piece on Netflix. The lesser success of the current Avatar, The Last Airbender, which is getting very mixed responses. But it started this wave of everyone looking for anime properties that are popular and then looking at how they can adapt them. And from Naruto to Inaritu. Oh, very good. I did, I, it's almost like it's almost like you, you planned that. <laughs> uh, Tom Cruise is set to star in director Alejandro Gonzalez Inaritu's next English language feature. Uh, this is the guy who gave us films such as The Revenant and Birdman. Warner Brothers Pictures and Legendary Entertainment are reportedly in negotiations for the project, which is currently untitled and will be directed, produced, and co-written by Inarito. Birdman co-writers Sabina Berman, Alexander Dinalaris, and Nicholas Glacobone are also on board the project, which will mark the first film from Cruise as part of his strategic partnership with Warner Brothers that we reported on last month. Uh, the project is under tight wraps. We don't even have a hint of what it's going to be. 
Cruise is said to be one of the first meetings the director is having with a select few actors. And I, I'm quite interested in seeing Cruise working with a quite a different style of director like Inarito. It's funny because I started on a run of the Mission Impossible films, went back to the De Palma one, watched Dead Reckoning again. That's so good. But it's it's nice to see Cruz mm. stepping out of his comfort zone. He has just become a bit of an action star recently. And you think of movies like Magnolia or Born on the Fourth of yeah. July, which really tested his acting chops. So I'd like to see Cruz, as he gets older as well, do much more character work as, a, as opposed to doing the running and jumping stuff, which he does so well. I mean, hey, the guy throws himself and a motorbike off a mountain for our entertainment. Recent smash, The Holdovers which saw Giamatti and Payne team up for the first time since Sideways. Well, on the back of that, Giamatti was saying in interviews recently that the one genre that he'd like to play in is a Western, and he thinks he'll be really good in a Western, and he's never had a chance to do a Western. And then what got announced this Friday? Alexander Payne, his next film, is a Western, and Giamatti is going to be starring in it. And the... We've come full circle now. Giamatti and Payne working together have delivered like sideways and the holdovers, which are both fantastic. And I can't wait to see what they do. Reteaming with a genre that Giamatti really wants to do. Um, David Hemmingson, who wrote the holdovers, is the one who's revealed this news this week and said that he and Payne are working together on this Western. He's co-writing the screenplay with Payne and the film unfolds in Nebraska in 1886 and that there's a part already in put aside for Giamatti himself. He also says it's like no Western you've ever seen before because it's an Alexander Payne Western. So all those interpersonal dynamics, all the stuff that he does so brilliantly. He's such a brilliant humanist. He's going to suffuse this thing. It'll be recognisable as within the genre and it'll have certain other tropes, but we intend to turn them on their head and really talk about the humanist perspective of 1886 Nebraska, which I'm thrilled about. I am definitely there. I love Payne. <laughs> don't don't beat me over the head when yeah, you yeah. see me in public. I don't mean that kind of pain. I love Alexander Payne's work. I love his analyses of human behaviour, which is what he does so well. Seeing that in a Western setting, yeah, I'm there. So last week we mocked slightly about the announcement of the next Jurassic World movie, that it had lost its director in the same week that they made the announcement they were doing another Jurassic World movie. However, the news of the potential new director has got me excited and I think is Ooh. the perfect choice, which is Gareth Edwards. He of Rogue One, Godzilla, and the recent The Creator. Now that makes my spider sense tingle, and in a good way. This guy gave us the low-budget monsters. Um, he also gave us Godzilla, which was basically a retread of monsters, just done with a great, iconic Godzilla character. He's a great creator who taps into human stories with a backdrop of monsters or sci-fi elements and yeah this this has sparked my interest in the jurassic franchise because we said with that when we were mocking it last week because david leach jumped on board and then jumped off as quick as he could get off that bullet train oh yeah good good reference yeah <laughs> but we said that like oh do we need more jurassic films but i think with a creator such as gareth edwards we could get something quite fresh from a franchise that, that, come on, how can people have been going wrong with giant dinosaurs on Earth for the past few films? I mean, how can you fail with that? Um, I know how. You turn it into a film about locusts attacking the planet, which has nothing to do with dinosaurs. <laughs> Fingers crossed on this one. It's got me excited again. He's also quite good at keeping his budget slow. As we know with the creator, he made that on 80 million. And he was upset with himself that he spent that much. So I'm hoping that he can actually 
rein in the budgets, make it profitable and just deliver a real good human story with a monster backdrop. Another story which has got me, if not more excited than the Gareth Edwards news, and that's the latest project from Sam Mendes, who is going to direct four Beatles biopics. Yes, uh, the Beatleverse. Yes, we heard it here first. <laughs> I don't know, is someone going to turn up at the end of the first film just saying, have I told you about the Beatles initiative? <laughs> Yeah, it should be Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> Skyfall and 1917 director Sam Mendes planning four separate films to focus on each of the Beatles, each of the films unfolding from the perspective of the individual band members. The plan is for all four films will intersect and tell the astonishing story of the greatest band in history with everything leading up to their 1970 breakup. I, I'm really, really excited. I didn't see this coming. I, I thought it was a bit of sort of fan fiction when I when I saw it uh, and I had to, to run it down and check up on it. And boy, I, I think it sounds amazing. I'm waiting to see any casting. I'll keep an eye out for the casting, but I'm more interested now just because Mendy's exploring this band from four different perspectives. And we're not going to have to wait a huge amount of time between films either, because all four of them are planned to be released theatrically in 2027. So okay. they will be shot back to back, which makes sense because if it's going to be intersecting stories, it will just be multi setups. Mendy said in an official statement, I'm honoured to be telling the story of the greatest rock band of all time, excited to challenge the notion of what constitutes a trip to the movies. And if anyone doesn't know who the Beatles are, again, and I say this quite frequently, what rock are you living under? <laughs> <laughs> Beatlemania might hit again. Who knows? Did it ever really go away? That's what I'm asking. Never. Never in my household. So Emma Stone clearly has a great working relationship with Yorgos Lanthimos as they're now planning their third outing. Previously, The Favourite and Poor Things, which is still about if you need to go and see it, they are looking at remaking a South Korean fantasy comedy, Save the Green Planet, as their next film together. It's been a long gestating eccentric black comedy following a disillusioned young man who captures and tortures a businessman who he believes to be part of an alien invasion. Battle of wits ensue between the captor and his devoted girlfriend, the businessman and private detective. The original film is a cult hit, but it's not going to be Lanthimos's next release because he's also been secretly filming his next Ooh. film, Kinds of Kindness. It's several months into post-production. And we've only discovered this this week, which Emma Stone is in that as well, alongside Margaret Qualley, Willem Dafoe returning to work with Lanthimos again, and Joe Alwyn. So it seems that Lanthimos has been a bit of a busy beaver in the background. You're still not a fan, though, are you? I'm still not a fan. If he'll just stop messing with that fisheye lens, I might be able to take to his films more. I don't get him. I, I appreciate what he does, and the performances in it, all of his films have been phenomenal but they just don't gel as a whole for me. But I understand why they do for other people. It's it's one of them that you can appreciate the art without actually enjoying the art. Uh, if you needed any confirmation that uh, James Gunn's Superman legacy is getting closer to shooting, James Gunn posted on his socials the assembled cast for a table read. And it was the first time we got to see Nicholas Holt without hair as he's playing Lex Luthor. And the way that Lex Luthor should be played uh, he shaved his hair off for the role. And everyone's gathered. Nathan Fillion uh, as Guy Gardner. Gunn's in there. Uh, his producer, um, the cast, as is. We are giddy. Yep. I can say that much. couple of release date shifts okay. that have shocked people. First of all, Ballerina 
the John Wick spin-off, which is going to star Anna de Armas, has been delayed a full year. It was originally supposed to be coming out this June. It's now opening June the 6th, 2025. And the delay is apparently due to the filming of a lot of additional action sequences for the movie. Chad Stelsky, who helmed the original John Wick franchise, is going to be coming on board to direct those sequences, which suggests that Len Wiseman didn't quite get the energy right. Interestingly enough, this week, Ian McShane was on one of those uh, uh, light entertainment chat shows and mentioned that he was currently shooting in, uh, I think he said, the Czech Republic. Uh, pickups for the ballerina and it made me think because i thought this is due really soon but that kind of confirms it filming began on this back in 2022 in prague and wrapped over a year ago it's kind of been in post-production so long this one that makes you worry i'm hoping that now that chad stelsky is on board things will get back together however on the back of that some good news came because we've been wondering wondering when we get a release date Lionsgate are going to release the crow in cinemas on june the 7th this year which was oh. the original date for ballerina now that the slot has been vacated we'll finally get to see Scarsgard in the crow and i can't wait we should do it as a deep dive andy <laughs> uh yes i think we did that one oh, way okay. back in the past <laughs> <laughs> uh, that means actually that we are probably due a trailer then because it's not that long away we start should start seeing some some images and um, yes. a teaser at least at this stage mickey 17 has also been shifted by a year it was originally scheduled for a march the 29th release literally next month but there was no posters no trailers and only one release publicity still though so far so didn't really come as a huge shock that warner suddenly pulled it from the release ca- calendar the delay has had immediate knock-on effect. Mickey 17 is the uh, Bong Joon-ho sci-fi thriller, which stars Robert Pattinson, but it's now moved to 2025. Uh, the knock-on effect is that Adam Wingard's Godzilla X-Kong The New Empire has moved up two weeks earlier to take over the abandoned March the 29th slot. The film was reportedly impacted by last year's strikes and other production shifts, thus requiring more time in post-production. The new date gives the film an IMAX run, which is beneficial for it because it gives it a chance to really generate some money next year. But it is a shame because I was quite looking forward to seeing what Bong Joon-ho's next weird sci-fi entry was going to be. Just have to wait a bit longer, I guess. And here's one that I never saw coming, especially seems though it's been almost 30 years. But David Katzenberg has come on board to direct Sam and Victor's Day Off. A spin-off of John Hughes's iconic 1986 Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Right. Um, Colour me concerned. I, I know nothing <laughs> of this. And okay. Uh, apparently, this spin-off is going to follow the two valets who took Cameron's father's Ferrari on a joyride through Chicago and had their own adventure way back on that fateful day. And I can't help but think that this is maybe 30 years too late yeah. to actually tap into that. It would have made an, an interesting spin-off back in the day because it's quite an iconic scene as they they escape to the star wars theme don't they yeah baffled let me baffled katzenberg is going to make his feature directorial debut on this project there's no word on casting yet it was originally supposed to be going straight to paramount plus but now they're eyeing a theatrical release the only good points that i can see on it is the key and peel producer paul young and the cobra kai team of john Hurwitz, hayden schlossberg and josh held okay set as producers So maybe there might be something to tap into it because we know how with Cobra Kai, they tapped into the nostalgia of something that else that we thought, is it too late for this? 
So maybe, maybe there might be something in here. Maybe, but I, I, I'll make a slight wager with you, Andy. I think it'll end up on Paramount. It'll end up on Paramount Plus. <laughs> there have been some significant trailer drops this week. There has. Uh, we're going to start with probably something that means more to you than it does to me. But for me, it looked okay. And that's the long-awaited Borderlands trailer uh, assembling Kevin Hart and Kate Blanchett. Yes. Now, you'll know that whenever we've spoken about the Borderlands movie, I've been quite dismissive of it. I'm a big fan of the games. And, you know, the casting didn't seem right. I mean, Kevin Hart is not not in the right role there. I wasn't convinced. It's Eli Roth who directed, but as we reported last year, he strangely enough wasn't involved in reshoots, rescripting, or most of the post-production. And I've not been looking forward to this trailer landing because I've been worried that I'd watch it and then just be angry. But you know what? I dug it. It's got the aesthetic of the game right. It's fun. The trailer looks like Mad Max clashed with Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. It's got that same kind of dynamic energy of characters, but it's got the Mad Max kind of aesthetic of like a post-apocalyptic future world. It looks right. It looks fun. Kevin Hart doesn't look too annoying, but the rest of the cast more than compensate for him. I'm more hopeful. I'm refusing to get too excited because this worries me that we've maybe just seen a really well-edited trailer and the rest of the film will be a mess. But it's lifted my spirits a bit. It's lifted my spirits. We also had, uh, well, it was a bit of a bit of an odd one. Uh, German director Moritz Mars, very bizarre, very bloody, sort of deranged mix-up of Silent Night, John Wick, The Hunger Games, and that was Boy Kills World. I did watch this. Oh, Bill Skarsgård in a dystopian fever dream of an action film that yeah. seems heavily influenced by the side-scrolling beat-em-ups of the 80s and 90s, like Final Fight and things like that. And it just, I mean, even, even the clothes that he's wearing looks like it's ripped from like a Double Dragon arcade game. The trailer started and it's got Bill Skarsgård and the monologue is not by Bill Skarsgård. No, because he plays a, a deaf mute in this. And so he has an inner voice. And the inner voice is the voice that he last heard, which was a video game that he played, similar to Final Fight. And from that point, it was like, okay, this looks bizarre. And then the action looks fantastic. I can't wait for Boy Kills World. I'm hoping it gets a cinema release, but it looks like the kind of film that will get dropped straight onto streaming. Yeah, good news is it's produced by Sam Raimi and it has that kind of that kind of aesthetic. That's two trailers this week that have both made me smile and made me hopeful for the future of uh, the future, not the future of like well-told story cinema, but the future of action cinema. Because last week was all the trailer drops because of the Super Bowl. There's only really been those two that have stood out this week. Yeah. Uh, but before we round off the news, just a quick mention that Yuki Demers, who worked on the Spider-Verse animated movies, revealed some concept art pieces from a project that he and director Patrick Harpen pitched around five months ago. And that's for Batman Beyond. Right. I don't know whether you saw these get released on no, Instagram this week. It looks beautiful. Now, Batman Beyond, for those who don't know, it was a it was re initially released in the UK as Batman of the Future, animated series from the same creative team who gave us the Batman animated series in the 90s. And it was set when Bruce Wayne was too old to be Batman anymore, and he recruits and trains a new person to take on the mantle. The character has gone on to have his own title in the comics and is well-loved by comic fans around the world. When they initially said that they wanted to pitch a Batman Beyond new movie, they were told no, but then revealed their pitch. And apparently it became a maybe. We'll think about it. And the hope is 
that they might do a Deadpool here, that because they've released the concept art and what they want it to look like, the fan excitement will show the studio that there's enough of a buzz that this will be a success. So fingers crossed, we might see a green light on this film in the coming months. Go and check online, do a search for Batman Beyond concept art, have a look at the image, looks beautiful. And I'm well and truly on board. So fingers crossed, we might have some good news on the horizon. That, folks, that's this week's The News. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if you haven't already subscribed, please do so by heading over to your favorite podcast platform, leaving a like, and remember to hit that subscription button. You can get in touch with us by... Social media channels, Film File UK, we're mostly prominent on Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, and Blue Sky. Or you can email us, podcast at filmfile.uk. Love to hear from you. Love to hear thoughts on film. Now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. We're going to take you back to 1979 for the first big screen outing of Steve Martin, directed by Carl Rayner, starring Martin and Bernadette Peters. We're going to be talking about the hugely, savagely funny The Jerk. In the history of motion pictures, only a select few performers have become immortalized by the roles they have portrayed. Consider The Vamp, The Champ, The Tramp. And now the most perfect casting of all, Steve Martin, The Jerk. It was never easy for me. I was born a poor black child. Meet Navin Johnson. He's poor. You mean I'm gonna stay this color? And he's eager. This is the kind of music that tells me to go out there and free somebody! But Navin... Let him go. Traveling down that lonely road, seeking fortune. Actual live weight guessing. Take a chance and win something. Finding fame. The new phone book's here! The new phone book's here! Johnson, Navin R. Sounds like a typical... And learning about love from a perfect master. Making new friends with an instinctive flair. He hates these cans! Stay away from the cans! But despite life's cruel twists of fate, why I'm spearheading the $10 million class action suit against Mr. Johnson as irresponsible selling of a product he didn't even test on prisoners. No matter how hot the action or how great the odds, he proved himself an inspiration to jerks everywhere. I'm gonna buy you a diamond so big it's gonna make you puke. Steve Martin. See that? Be somebody. He may not be perfect, but he's the only jerk we've got. Steve Martin, the jerk. Yellow. The jerk. That's right. Steve Martin, can you tell the difference? I am not a bum. I'm a jerk. Where do we start with this movie? I'll, I'll give you the plot. 
Steve Martin, who plays Navin R. Johnson, the jerk of the title, needs adventure in his life. He needs a special purpose, which leads him to St. Louis. However, chaos, trouble, follow him along his journey with plenty of outrageous scenes and huge belly laughs. Written by Steve Martin, who was at that point one of the biggest stand-up comedians in America, not particularly well-known in the UK. And I, I don't know if this did get a cinema release, but it became a home rental gem of a movie. I remember showing this to friends and then we'd watch it again. It was that funny. Steve Martin plays a sheltered, simple-minded country boy upon deciding that he needs adventure, just leads him to the most bizarre episodic elements of this particular film. It is, beyond a doubt, one of the funniest films that you will ever see if you've not had chance. And when Andy said, we need to revisit The Jerk, boy, he was right. This got added onto the deep dives list because I re-watched this last month just on a whim. It was one of them that you just go, you know what I've not watched in ages? Early Steve Martin comedies. And so I found, dug out The Jerk, sat and watched it, and I was in hysterics from start to finish. And I was like, we need to talk about this film because this is, this is a film that the idea of came from a stand-up routine that Steve Martin was doing. It was uh, it, apparently the stand-up routine is on his debut comedy album, Let's Get Small. Which I, I, I don't know if I still have, but I did have. Um, I once picked it up in a, in a record shop because nobody knew who Steve Martin was. I think it was like 50p. And <laughs> again, I was just so engrossed by Steve Martin. I, I didn't know anything about him, but I, I just thought he was hysterical. That Back in the day, that's what we did, folks. We used to have comedy yeah. albums of people stand up. Yes. He claimed in his stand up routine, uh, one of his throwaway jokes was that he was born a poor black child. But once he heard his first Mantovani record, he decided to become white. And that's where the concept for this film came from, because you start the film with him being the, the white adopted child of a black family who doesn't realize that he's white. And like when he get when he finally gets told he's adopted, his distress are like, you mean I'm always going to be this color? <laughs> and then sets off to seek his fame and fortune in like, you know, the big city. And along the way, every scene and every encounter ends with an absolute zinger. It's all based around the comedy. This isn't anything that the plot makes much sense because it's all done just to get a whole load of stand-up routines put together and make it hilarious from start to finish. That used to be a thing when stand-ups would make the jump into either TV or movies. It would be predominantly based around some of their stand-up acts. And there, there are elements of this that run through the movie. Each one of his adventures is part of his, his, his stand-up, uh, the banjo playing. Uh, cat juggling was one of the things that Steve Martin used to do on stage. Um, and it worked and it was comfortable territory for not only for Martin, but for those comedians who'd, who'd made that jump. You still see it occasionally now, but back in the day, that was pretty much how a comedian would make that transition. <laughs> you say the banjo playing, that beach scene, because there's a love story within this as well. There's the love elements that develops between um, Bernadette, Bernadette Peters's Marie and Steve Martin as Navin. And there's a beautiful scene with them on the beach where he's serenading her. And then she takes out a trumpet and starts playing alongside. It's just the most bizarre love scene that you will ever see in your life. Uh, Bernadette Peters, 
the part that she plays was written with her in mind. Steve Martin wanted her to be part of the film. And I think it works perfectly because the chemistry between the pair is magnificent. She is a joy in this. And again, was one of those those, uh, actors or entertainers that wasn't particularly well known on this side of the pond. She was uh, uh, big in musicals. She'd been big on stage. Um, She was vivacious and she is she steals and so hard to do every scene she's in with Steve Martin because this sort of uh, um, quiet innocence that she has is played out beautifully. I mean, I'm just thinking about this film and I'm, I'm, I'm grinning like an idiot because it's just so ridiculously funny. It is Steve Martin at the top of his game as a stand-up and it, it is just a joy. It's a joy of a film. It's ridiculously silly, but it, it once teamed up with the great Carl Rayner, who uh, was famous for his work on the Dick Van Dyke show and and working with Mel Brooks on uh, the 2,000-year-old man. What a perfect combination, and they would go on to work together. But we'll discuss that in a moment. Carl Rayner himself pops up in this film in a brief but hilarious cameo as himself suing Steve Martin's Navin character after being plagued with becoming cross-eyed due to an invention that Navin came up with, which, as a director, his inability to sense depth means that he doesn't know when to call cut on action scenes, resulting in the deaths of some of his stuntmen. <laughs> and I just love that absurdist nature of the director inserting himself in to have fun. The comedy is so well balanced in this as well, because there's throwaway scattershot lines that are just quick puns. But there's also well-played-out engagements that the, it's a dialogue exchange, and then the payoff is brilliant. And then there's the lingering on a joke to such a degree that you start to think, okay, this is getting tired now, but then it comes back and gets you laughing again. And the best example of that is when his life's falling apart, he's losing all his riches, and he's got his pants around his ankles, and he's leaving the house going, I don't need any of this except that stapler. Uh, But aside from that, I don't... Oh, and And he starts picking up things one after the other. And you think, well, how long can this go on for? And then you start laughing again as he gets to the bottom of the stairs and grasps a chair and goes, and this chair, I need this chair. And then he turns around to say, and my dog, the dog growls at him and says, I don't need my dog. And then walks off. (laughs) That whole sequence is, oh, I was just creased from the start to the end because it's Steve Martin riffing. And apparently like a load of the dialogue that he did in there, he was just riffing as he went along and like occasionally would just pick up another item. I just add that onto the list of things that he needs to keep. Marvellously done. The fact that it's then followed him wandering the streets of LA, still with his trousers around his ankles and his dressing gown on, it's just perfection of comedy. This is a comedian at the peak of his game, at the start of his game. It is. It is geniusly funny and very different from the Steve Martin that we know now because at that point he was he was riotously funny. He worked with Carl Rayner again. And, and I think the very early Steve Martin films are will always be some of my favourites because they are the most surreal and the most outrageous. They followed up with the brilliant, incredibly clever Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid, which was was kind of spoofed in uh, in a beer ad in the UK. But they did it first, in which they combined old movies with a plot as Martin as a private detective. Uh, the Man with Two Brains, which is equally as silly as the previous films. And then All of Me? Did they do All of Me together? 
yes, all of me was uh, Rainer and Steve Martin. Um, and again, what a fantastic run. Uh, and then Steve Martin started to change direction in, in what he did and, and didn't want to be the wild and crazy guy that he had been for so long and, and moved into more straight acting with Pennies from Heaven, which wasn't a huge success for him. But he also did L.A. Story. He did a run of family movies like Father of the Bride. He did the great trains, planes and automobiles. He did get silly again with Three Amigos. He kind of like tried to balance things out. I mean, he was always at his best when he was doing comedy. But yeah, he's one of those comedy actors that could do serious as well. The Father of the Bride series, like you've mentioned, two films there that are well worth seeing. He then made quite a few bad choices. I mean, let's talk about the 90s when he did Sergeant Bilko. I mean, what was that about? Yeah, Pink Panther. But he kind of made a comeback for me in 1999's Bowfinger, which we've got on our deep dive list to cover yeah, at some film. point. And since then, he's he's kind of dipped in and out of doing like, you know, Cheaper by the Dozen was good, but Rat Race wasn't. He's kind of lost that spark and magic. But whenever you still see him doing any stand-up stuff, and in recent years when he's done awards hosting, you can see that genius of comedy. And definitely in the past few years with Only Murders in the Building, we're starting to see that old Steve Martin charm coming back. And it's making me remember exactly what it was about Steve Martin that works so well. If it wasn't for the jerk getting him on the big screen for the first time, we wouldn't have Only Murders in the Building to look at look at, and love immensely. Um, the jerk is just perfect, absurdist comedy. There's not one scene that goes by that you're not at least chuckling. There'll never just be a smile on your face. There's always noise emanating from yet from moment to moment because it just goes in so many directions and just catches you off guard at any moment. Simple lines like when he finds out what his special purpose is for, he writes home to tell them that he's found out what it is and he wishes the whole family could have been here with him. And you need to see the film to understand what he's talking about there, but it doesn't leave much to the imagination. And the dialogue exchange of why are you crying and why are you wearing that old dress? I just heard a song on the radio that reminded me of the way we were. What was it? The way we were. That's just perfection. <laughs> That's what makes this partnership with him and Rainer work so well. And over the rest of their four films together, it continued through. Like you say, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid was just a genius concept. Man With Two Brains is very much like The Jerk. And All Of Me was a a touch more close to the sentimental comedy. Great stuff. The Jerk. If you've never seen it, track it down. I've just remembered, actually, the first time I actually saw Steve Martin, and he was a guest on Parkinson promoting The Jerk, and Parkinson didn't know how to deal with him because the comedy was so out there, and he ended up <laughs> with him cutting in half Michael Parkinson's tie. It, it might be out there somewhere on YouTube. Check it out. There are so many great performances from Steve Martin. Um, I could name Roxanne, Simple Twist of mm. Fate. He's more darker turn in The Spanish Prisoner, but it is the jerk if you want to see him at his most comedically brilliant. And Andy, where can we find the jerk if we want to watch it? It's not available for free on any services at this point in time, but if you, you can rent it for a couple of quid or you can purchase it. And I, this is a film that I think everyone should purchase and add to their physical collection because you are going to rewatch this. One time watching this film is not enough. Even though I only watched it last month, I want to rewatch this again now because... Just talking about it has reminded me of how much fun I had for that round about hour and a half watching 
a comedy genius at his comedy best. Couldn't agree more. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. And Andy, he's been doing the Lord's work because he's been doing all the movies to tell you all about them. What are you going to kick off with, Andy? Let's start with Wicked Little Letters, a foul-mouthed yet charming British comedy based on real-life events. The mystery of the obscene little Hampton letters is causing widespread distress across the nation. Edith Swan takes it up the and she loves it more than Christmas Day. Only words about that. She sucks ten <clears throat> a week, minimum. Holy heavens. In the end, I think it's just jealousy. Rose Gooding, you are writing these wicked little letters to Edith Swan. Why would I send a letter when I can just say it? I'll get you in the ball, sir! She's heinous. You want <gasps> in the nose, you old beetle. Beetle? Right. <laughs> You're charging her. What's the evidence? Marianne, you weren't Similarities in the language. I've got a daughter at home. Why would I risk it all? In prison, Rose may find some kindred spirits. In prison? No, no, not the murderers or the rapists. I'm thinking more the drunks and the queers, maybe. Just trying to find a bright side. Based upon a true story that shook the British decency in the 1920s, Wicked Little Letters focuses on neighbours Edith Swan, played by Olivia Coleman, and Rose Gooding, played by Jessie Buckley, in the quiet and reserved seaside town of Littlehampton. Edith is prim and proper, and is quite shocked when the boisterous and foul-mouthed Rose moves in next door, as indeed are many in the community around them. Initially striking up a very curious friendship, Things turn sour when Edith begins receiving obscene letters commenting on her life and her appearance. With the finger of suspicion firmly pointed at Rose, the friendship totally breaks down and an investigation from the police puts Rose's freedom and the custody of her daughter at risk. However, whilst most of the police force firmly believe that Rose is the guilty party, the sole female officer, PC Gladys Moss, played by Anjana Vassan, has doubts and she looks to uncover who the real culprit is. The trailers and the publicity for this touted it as being a riotous comedy of manners, but the end result is something very different. Yes, there are laughs to be had, either from the reading of the foul letters or the comedic incompetence of the police force, but the film is also quite a strong drama that explores a variety of social themes. Being set in the 20s, in post-war era when women were finding the freedom and equality that the wartime seemed to grant them was being stripped away again to make them second-class citizens to the male population, the film explores these social and sexual dynamics in quite a smart way. From Edith's overbearing and controlling father Edward, Timothy Spall on magnificent form, to the sneeringly undermining way that the male police force looked down on PC Moss, through to the hypocrisy shown in reactions to Rose's nature from men who are just as outspoken and vulgar. It's in this aspect that the film grows to be something more than the witty comedy it was pitched as. Class divides are broached, gender stereotypes are challenged, all using the conflict between Edith and Rose as the connective tissue. There's a great lineup of British cast throughout, and all of them lend fine performances to allow the story to never feel drawn out. Coleman is, as ever, a strong central performer, but it's through Buckley that we get some genuine heart and depth, with Rose's background being explored, her family life being put under threat. Yes, the mystery that unravels isn't all that clever, but thanks to the marvellous cast, it doesn't really become an issue. You stop actually caring about the who done it aspect, 
and more start to care about the bonds of family and friendship that are being eroded throughout. It's a pleasantly diverting British comedy drama that draws from a little-known story to deliver an entertaining, albeit forgettable, experience. All right, so my half fancies that one, but I, I don't think I do. Um, yeah, moving on. Landed on Paramount Plus this week in the UK, came out last year in the US, and that's William Friedkin's The Kane Mutiny Court Martial. The cyclone was coming at us from the east. We were sailing blind through the rain and the spray. My executive officer went into a panic. He repeatedly tried to order me off the bridge. I told him he was performing a mutinous act. The trial counsel will state the charge. Charge one, mutiny. Did you relieve the commander of the USS Kane? Yes. Captain Quig had lost control. We had the commander under constant observation. You felt you had the right to depose a commanding officer on the grounds of mental illness. Yes. Did you think he was insane? Can you describe when and where the captain displayed this aversion to danger? No. Why do his hands tremble? Objection. The honor and career of an officer with an unblemished military record of 21 years standing is involved. Counsel and the witness are herewith cautioned that they are treading on dangerous and unprecedented grounds here. I don't understand what you're doing. I want to win this case. I have a chance with one heroic exec. Making that stick is the only chance for you to win. He was a petty tyrant and utterly incompetent. I've had a spotless record up until now, and I was stabbed in the back. Are you testifying that Merrick deliberately violated his captain's orders? It's the principle of respect for the command, and that principle was dead. Did you offer to alter the logs? That's a lie. Answer the question, please. It's a malicious lie. Objection. The witness is being badgered. Isn't it obvious that one of you is not telling the truth? William Friedkin's final film before he sadly passed away last year is an adaptation of Herman Volk's novel of the same name, which was previously adapted to film in 1954 starring Humphrey Bogart. However, this adaptation draws primarily from the play, and much like that version, focuses purely on the courtroom drama. It never cuts away to reenact the events that transpired on the USS Kane, and it leaves us as the audience to try to decide for ourselves what the actual truth is of the alleged mutiny that arose from the testimonies of the witnesses. Keeping the setting as a single courtroom and without embellishing the presentation with dramatic score or overdone theatrics, Friedkin finished his career with a reminder of what an absolute master of his art he was and how he could always deliver solid, engaging drama with a very simple setup. Drawing from the talents of his excellent cast, the filmmaker keeps the pacing strong And by not shifting from the courtroom dynamics, he insists that we have to pay attention to every detail in every word or every nuance of action that the called on witnesses display. Kiefer Sutherland gives a solid performance as Lieutenant Commander Quig, whose authority was challenged in the alleged incident, and gets to deliver a stirring monologue that serves so many levels of nuance as a proud leader of men is reduced down to insecurity and confusion. Jason Clark, as the defence attorney, Lieutenant Greenwald, is the primary character in the film, but he never steals from the others in their moments. He also gets to deliver a monologue in the closing moments of the film, and it's one that is delivered with so much perfection that it pretty much challenges any perception of prior events of the film 
to leave a further spark of ambiguity about the true events that took place. This was Friedkin's desire to leave the truth buried in ambiguity, letting the viewer decide on the rights and wrongs in their own mind, and he certainly achieved it. Lance Reddick leads the trial as head judge Captain Blakely in one of his final roles before he passed away, and he reminds us of what a wonderful talent that we lost last year, and the film is dedicated to the memory of him. Elsewhere, we have Jake Lacey, Monica Raymond, Lewis Pullman, Tom Riley, and Jay Duplass, all bringing their A-game. The end result is a gripping and intense courtroom drama that is a reminder of how you don't need a huge budget. You don't need pulsing action. You don't need dramatic music to impress when you have a sharp script and a fine assortment of players to enact it. Friedkin left us with this reminder of why he was one of the finest filmmakers that we've ever had. And he's ensured that his legacy will always be remembered. So if you like that, Andy, you should really check out the original which starred Humphrey Bogart Jose Ferreira and Fred McMurray, I believe. And if it's as good as that film, then I'm really interested because The Cane Mutiny is, is one of those great classics of all time. And finally, I'm going to another of the Oscar nominated documentaries. And it's one that's been getting a lot of notice at various awards in recent months. And that's 20 Days in Mariupol. Okay, I don't know anything about this, so tell me all about it. Someone once told me, wars don't start with explosions. They start with silence. Russians have entered the city. The war has begun. And we have to tell its story. This is painful to watch. But it must be painful to watch. When Russia began its invasion of the Ukraine, journalist and filmmaker Mstislav Chernov found himself and his crew trapped in the besieged port of Mariupol for 20 days and documented the invasion the impact on lives caught up in it, and we were determined to show the world outside what was really happening whilst the Russian propaganda machine tried to cover up the reality. In the early days of the invasion, news channels around the world ran images and moments caught by Chernov and his team that showed the true horror of the conflict. And this documentary, put together by Chernov, compiles his footage together to show a town and its people swiftly brought to decimation and captures the raw brutality of war from a very harrowing and very bleak viewpoint. This is not an easy film to watch, but it is an essential one. It shows the atrocities and war crimes served out by the invading forces without any reservation. As innocent lives are impacted, as Russian strikes on communities and public buildings wreck homes, destroy families and shatter lives, there's no holding back as we see bodies Young and old, we see destruction, we see distress, and we even see how the worst side of human nature can come from the confusion that the attacks caused. In the early days of the entries, the citizens are worried, but reassure themselves that surely the public areas aren't targets. But as strikes are made on residential areas, and even hospitals, the horrific scenes that unfold, all the while Chernov and his crew being asked to keep filming to show the world what is really going on, 
are sure to upset and distress. Looters raiding stores are confronted by the crew, asking them what they're doing it for. And a storekeeper who's lost her home breaks down on camera as her business is being stripped bare by her fellow citizens. Russian propaganda impacts on some residents who begin to believe the stories that it's the Ukraine themselves committing these atrocities. Society breaks down swiftly, all captured in this few short weeks that the film crew were trapped there. This isn't an easy film to watch. It doesn't hold back on the distressing images. And it's certainly a film that once you've seen it, you'll never want to see it again. The images will have already been burned deep into your mind on that first watch. What it is, however, is a documentary that shows us not only the true horror of war and the suffering of innocence caught up in it, but also the importance of war correspondents and their determination to put their own lives in danger in order to capture the truth of a situation. This is possibly one of the most important documentary films of our times, and it's a must-see. So that's what's out this week, but coming up, well, we've got really the first big week in cinema and we get the release of June. Now, I've done a little bit of research because, you know, part of my job. And from what I'm seeing, ticket sales are in advance of the original film. Yes. Uh, now, we have to remember that the original film was unfortunate to be released at a time when Warners were dropping all of their new releases on HBO Max on the same day. So that stymied some of that box office. But this is looking like it's going to be huge. I can't wait. It's next week. We will have seen it by the time of the show and we will be talking about Dune Part 2. Uh, but also, if you want something a bit different, there's Four Daughters, documentary that's been nominated for Best Documentary at the Oscars, lands at UK cinemas. Lisa Frankenstein gets a release. And Combat that, you know. Wombat. Lisa Frankenstein. Know, that's that's Lisa Frankenstein, not Combat Wombat. Yes, I, I'd guess that. <laughs> <laughs> and Combat Wombat for the youngers. Uh, now TV and Sky. Ferrari lands this week and over at Netflix we've mentioned it previously in the show Spaceman um, which is the Adam Sandler film about an astronaut six months into a solo mission who starts to confront the cracks in his personal life with help from a mysterious creature that he finds on his ship there's Captive State which sounds interesting after almost a decade of alien rule a group of freedom fighters face off against human collaborators fancy this and Femme Drag performer encounters a man who brutally attacked him and finds his desire for revenge ignites a dangerously unpredictable connection. Okay. There's a lot week. next week. I don't think we're going to be able to talk about them all on the show. We'll try our best, though. If you, if you hate yourself, you could always tune into Disney Plus next week as Morbius lands on there. <laughs> it's Morbo time. And on Apple TV Plus, it's not great, but there are elements of Ridley Scott being the master that he can be in Napoleon that finally lands for free on the streaming service there. We'll be talking about Dune next week. I'll try to pack in some of the others. But for now, well, we're done, folks. Uh, thank you for joining us on The Film File, as you do every week. But before you go, let's tell you about our neat things, stuff that we've enjoyed over the last week. And it can be absolutely anything as long as we've enjoyed it. Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? My neat thing this week is the latest special from those guys who are maybe a bit too old to be doing the stupidity that they do these days, but I still have fun watching them. And that's uh, Clarkson, May and Hammond with producer Wilman, The Grand Tour, their latest special sand job, which sees them trekking across the desert in Africa. They basically follow the African stages of the Paris-Dakar rally in well, cars that aren't fit for the job. 
the task this time was to take some normal sports cars and modify them for a desert landscape. And I've always loved the antics of these three absolute idiots. I know that some of it has been staged over the years, but I've always enjoyed particularly, even way back in the Top Gear days, when it was the specials, when they just focused on like traveling across this country or this icy wilderness and the challenges they face. Because as well as them playing practical jokes on each other or their cars breaking down and the little jokey elements, you'd also get some insight into the societies, the cultures and the histories of every place that they go through. So they work like fun documentaries. And this one is one of their best. I think that when they started the Grand Tour, after they were they left Top Gear, after Clarkson was booted out, I think they should have gone straight to doing this kind of format. Because the first two years of Grand Tour, whilst I enjoyed them, it was just trying to be Top Gear. Whereas this is where they really do work. And we've got one more of their specials to come by the end of this year before they finally retire this whole concept. And you know what? After seeing this, I will miss these specials which are one and a half to two hours long and have always been a highlight showing three car lovers who do get on even though they bicker a lot on on camera just basically doing what they love they are getting a bit too old to do this constantly and you know in recent years they've angered so many different nations that there's not many places that you can actually still go back go to but i will always have some love for the grand tour and these episodes are ones that I will happily go back and rewatch and rewatch every now and then. Grand Tour Sand Job landed on Amazon last week. Well worth checking out. I mentioned something earlier in the show, and I mentioned as my neat thing recently, I've been listening to the Mission Impossible official podcast, which is Light the Fuse and highly entertained. And listened to an interview with Paula Wagner, who produced alongside Tom Cruise the first three movies, and it piqued my interest. So I've gone back and I've started re-watching the Mission Impossible film series uh, and, and started with Dead Reckoning because it appeared on Sky and thought, what a great place to start and go back. Uh, I'm up to Ghost Protocol and, and I'm having such a great time with this quite unique film series. Now, it is one of the most successful film series of all time. You can watch varying hair lengths of, of, uh, and designs of Tom Cruise's Barnet as you go through from the, the close crop to the long hair. But each film is so well done. Uh, and I've forgotten how good the Brandy Palmer original film was. Now, I, when it came out, I liked it rather than loved it. And I, I think I've only ever seen it one other time. But watching it again, I thought it was going to feel like a bit of an, an outlier because the films became, became more action-packed. But it moves... Uh, a, a different pace. You really get to see the development of Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt character from being one of the team to then leading the team and why we stuck with that character. And of course, you got the amazing sequence at the FBI headquarters where uh, Tom Cruise hangs above the computer console and everything done is done in silence. And that's such an amazingly very Brian De Palma move because he borrowed it from Taparki. But in a film where you've got tons and tons of action, you've got an entire 10-minute sequence almost, which is silent. Brilliant stuff. I'm, I've thoroughly enjoyed revisiting this film series. Um, I think my favorite is the J.J. Abrahams one, Mission Impossible 3, because for me, that's when it started feeling like the TV show. Um, but yeah. everybody who's directed it, from John Woo, De Palma, Brad Bird, 
to Christopher McQuarrie all bring something unique to it. And what a great series. And I'm looking forward even more so because we're not getting it this year. We're getting it next year now, the second part of this particular run, which appears to be the last, I don't think it'll be the last Mission Impossible film, but maybe the last one with Cruz as Ethan Hunt because you can carry this on. You know, Andy, we should do it as a deep dive. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I think we've actually covered the Mission oh, Impossible okay. franchise. <laughs> That's folks, that's us out of here. Thank you as ever for joining us right here on the film file. Remember to tell your friends about the show, leave a like, subscribe if you haven't. Uh, and we'll be back next week where we're going to be talking about uh, a little old film set in a sandpit called Dune. Andy, any plans for this week? I mean, yeah, I mean, next week we've got sand and we've got Sandler. So, uh, what a good Ooh, show it'll be next week. There's the title of the show right there Sand and Sandler. <laughs> Um, my only pl other plans is I'm now preparing for a week off work because it is my birthday at the start of March. So uh, they've nicely released June 2 just for my birthday. Isn't that nice? Fantastic. I would love to. <laughs> you know, Andy, I once had wealth, power, the love of a beautiful woman. Now I only have two things, my friend and my thermos. Thank you.